Gender roles of various societies and cultures has always been a topic of fascination for myself as well as others, and the role of women in ancient Egypt is no exception. According to Lisa Schwapik Sheriff, in the past the role of women of ancient Egypt has received little attention in terms of research due to a couple of reasons. One reason being that most findings relate to public life and funerary activities were documented mostly by men concerned with their own activities, whereas findings relating to private dwellings, where the bulk of the activities of women occurred, are more difficult to identify. Another reason being that since the decipherment of the Egyptian language after the discovery of the Rosetta Stone in 1798, most of the focus has been on trying to get a broad outline of the history of ancient Egypt regarding political history, chronological order of events, and documenting temples and royal tombs, rather than focusing on the particulars of the society, such as the various roles of the genders. Something that makes the role of women in ancient Egypt stand out so much is that according to findings and documentation, men and women were of equal importance, according to the law, which differs from many other ancient societies where women were considered property. The following breaks down different areas and aspects of the society and how women factored into that area, and we'll begin with the role of women in the home life. When a man and woman married, they were considered full and equal partners. The woman had certain rights in the marriage. For example, if the couple divorced, the woman would keep the property that she entered the marriage with and would receive one-third of the community property. Usually, first marriages would be arranged when the young woman reached the age of 12 or 13, as they were expected to marry and start their household. Higher-status women would be referred to as mistress of the house, and they were more likely to have the officially sanctioned control over their property. Poor women did not have the power to assert their legal rights as it appears. The poorest people in Egypt were likely to be elderly, divorced, or widowed women, a pattern that unfortunately continues in many corners of the world today. Household industries that occurred in the home, such as the production of linen, weaving, and brewing beer, were considered the women's responsibility in the household, and the men did not question them in these matters. There is a quotation from a passage of the New Kingdom Instruction of Ani that says, quote, Do not control your wife in her house. When you know she is efficient, don't say to her, Where is it? Get it, when she has put it in the right place. Let your eye observe in silence, then you recognize her skill, end quote. This quote is supporting that, once again, you are not to question women in their domain, which would be the household. Included in the home life is childbearing and raising. These were very important responsibilities of the women of ancient Egypt. Infertility was seen as the fault of the women, and they would use fertility figures to help them become pregnant. Those who became pregnant would be protected by the goddess Tuaret, represented by the hippopotamus. Procreation was seen as very important, as the children of the society would be the ones to take care of the elders. They would ensure a proper burial to prepare the deceased for a successful afterlife. Raising healthy children in ancient Egypt was a very hard task. At times, as many as 50% of the children died before the age of five. It was seen as the mother's responsibility to protect the children from physical and spiritual threats, and she did so by having them wear the proper amulets to ensure their health and their safety. Their survival was the most important fact of life in ancient Egypt.
Children buried their parents so they were necessary for a successful eternal life. Now the next aspect of women in ancient Egypt I want to go over is literacy. At times, less than 2% of the population of ancient Egypt could read or write. Those that could held the title of scribe. The education of scribes consisted of boys being sent to special schools at a young age to endure grueling lessons in order to learn the complex written language. Females were not sent to schools as they were not going to assume any positions where literacy was a necessity, but this does not mean that all females were illiterate. According to Dr. Gay Robbins in her book Women in Ancient Egypt, there is documentation where the word for scribe Sesh, spelled S-E-S-H, is shown in its feminine form, Seshet, spelled S-E-S-H-E-T. Now this could be referring to a scribe that was female, hence the feminine form of the word, or some believe it is the title which translates as cosmetician or painter of her mouth. Dr. Robbins also goes on to describe some artwork found that depicts a woman with a scribal kit under her which could represent a female scribe. But next to these women pictured in the artwork were men. There is the possibility that those kits belonged to the men in the pictures, but that there was not enough room to carve those kits under the man, so instead they put it under the women. It is not out of the realm of possibility for some women to have been literate. They could have learned from their brothers or fathers in the home after their scribal lessons for the day. It was also very likely that many of the duties of a high-ranking lady of the house required literacy, as books had to be kept, transactions recorded, and letters of instruction sent. But they were not sent to those special schools that the young men were, who would obtain the title of scribe. Now onto the temple life, which did have a very important role in ancient Egypt. Dr. Emily Teeter explains that women had important roles in the temple. They were singers, dancers, and higher-class women held titles such as priestesses, in particular during the Old Kingdom. Those that held sacred offices passed these positions down from mother to daughter. The priestesses of the Old Kingdom took on full ritual responsibilities and held such titles as prophet of the goddess Hathor, or prophet of the goddess Ni, which suggested that the priestesses only served goddesses and not gods. After the Old Kingdom, the title of priestess basically disappeared, with that role taken over by males, even for temples devoted to goddesses. During the New Kingdom, evidence suggests that females held roles such as singers and dancers in temples of the male deities, with titles such as songstresses or chantresses. These singers and dancers used musical instruments for their chants and music, such as sistrums, which rattle when shaken, beaded necklaces called manats, which made noise when shaken also, and clappers. During the New Kingdom, we see a very important title for a high-ranking priestess, God's Wife. This title is given to sisters, wives, or daughters of pharaohs, and is associated with the god Amun who is a very influential and important deity of ancient Egypt. It appears that in the 18th dynasty, it was associated with the female heir to the royal line, and the holder of the title was from the town of Akmim, the home of the descendants of Queen Amos Nefertari, the female founder of the dynasty. 
These royal cousins, such as Queen T and probably Nefertiti, married the man who eventually became king, and they may have been the source of his right to rule. Dr. Teeter also notes that references to female deities are found just as early as male deities. Some of the earliest are Hathor, goddess of nurturing, dance, music, and regeneration. Neith, goddess associated with war. Sekhmet, goddess of death, war, destruction, and illness, but also of healing. Bastet, protector of the household, goddess of music and dance. Isis, although popular and well-known today, was not really a prominent deity in ancient Egypt until the Ptolemaic period, when temples were built in her honor. According to Eric Hornung in his book The Secret Lore of Egypt, during the late period Isis had obtained the status of a universal goddess, and the spread of the cult of Isis is found around 4th century BCE, with the excavation of temples at Piraeus, Eritrea, and followed by excavations of temples on some of the Mediterranean islands. The cult lasted in Athens until 4th century CE and is also present in the Roman Empire beginning as early as 88 BCE. The interesting thing about the goddesses of ancient Egypt, unlike the goddesses of many other ancient cultures, is that they were not merely reflections of their male partner or husbands. They had their own personalities, their own powers, and their own motivations. For example, Nephthys, the wife of the god of chaos, Set, defied her husband to assist her sister, Isis, in defeating him. The palace life is the last area I'm going to explore. The majority of rulers of ancient Egypt have been males, although there have been a few exceptions which will be discussed a little bit later. A hierarchy did exist among the royal women that surrounded the throne. Most often, secondary wives, sisters, and daughters were not documented on things such as monuments, but principal wives and the mothers of the kings were mentioned on monuments and even had their own estates run by officials. The principal wives of the pharaoh were usually his sister or half-sister. One theory used to explain this tells us that the power of the throne was passed down the royal female line, but the male that married the royal female exercised this power by becoming pharaoh. For example, if the son of the previous pharaoh wanted to rule, he had to marry his sister or half-sister in order to legitimize his right to exercise his power. Or, during the 18th dynasty, marry one of the heiresses of Akmim, a tradition that continued until the 19th dynasty. Another theory explaining these marriages describes these brother and sister unions being modeled after the brother and sister unions of the gods and goddesses, such as Shu and Tefnut, Geb and Newt, and Isis and Osiris. The secondary wives are mostly from non-royal families, but this did not mean that their child might not become king, and if their child in fact does become king, the position of that wife would escalate in importance. The mother and the principal wife of the king held important ritualistic roles within the ancient Egyptian society and were associated with prominent goddesses such as Hathor and Ma'at. For that reason, there was great competition in the royal harem for one son to become king. In fact, Dr. Robbins mentions in her essay that one overly ambitious mother apparently murdered Ramses III in a failed attempt to place her son on the throne. 
Now there are some royal women who stand out in the history of Egypt. Nefertiti, whose name means the beautiful one has arrived, was married to Akhenaten, or Amenhotep IV. During Akhenaten's rule, he changed the religion to the worship of one god, the Aten. Evidence from this time period suggests that he valued the opinion of his wife during his rule and may have even consulted her on various issues. For example, artwork from this time focuses much on Nefertiti, and Dr. Robbins suggests that because of the absence of goddesses due to the change in religion, Nefertiti's position may have compensated for the lack of balance in the religion. Another prominent woman is Hatshepsut, also of the 18th dynasty. After her husband, Thutmose II, died, she assumed that throne and she abandoned tradition by assuming the title of king rather than queen, and often depicting herself in the king's costume rather than that of the queen. This was necessary as there was no word in ancient Egyptian for a female ruler. Hatshepsut had to become a male, technically, to rule. When her nephew Thutmose III became old enough to rule, some believe that Hatshepsut did not want to give up her power and instead became a co-ruler with her nephew. After her death, her name was erased from many of the monuments of that time. According to Dr. Robbins in her book Women in Ancient Egypt, there are a couple of theories regarding these erasures, one being that Thutmose disliked his aunt and her actions and wanted to destroy any evidence of her period of rule. Another theory was that perhaps he may have just wanted to destroy evidence that a woman ruled as king over Egypt. This was not an accepted role for a woman. Dr. Robbins suggests evidence to support this latter theory consisting of Hatshepsut's name surviving in locations that were hidden, and her name was not erased when she was referred to as the king's wife, an accepted female role. Also, the erasures of her name did not occur until many years after her death, unlikely if Thutmose truly hated her. It would have been religiously impossible for the priesthood to explain a female pharaoh, as the king was called the living Horus, a male god. There simply just could not be a female Horus, so it is likely that Thutmose succumbed to pressure to erase her role as king, but he held out for many years and her name was allowed to survive in hidden locations in a culturally accepted role. Hatshepsut is a notable figure among Rosicrucian teachings, as there is a theory being explored by Rosicrucian Park research librarian Stephen Armstrong, suggesting that she could possibly be responsible for the unification of the mystery schools of Egypt during her co-rule with Thutmose III. Evidence supporting this theory is found in the Ancient Records of Egypt by James Henry Breasted, which describes an inscription on a statue of Hapusineb, Hatshepsut's vizier, indicating the, quote, formation of the priesthood of the whole land into a coherent organization, with a single individual at its head, end quote. The formation of the priesthood of the whole land would be the possible referral to the unification of the mystery schools, and this appears for the first time under the co-rule of Thutmose III and Hatshepsut which former imperator Dr. H. Spencer Lewis referred to. This theory will be further researched in a future publication by our research librarian, Stephen Armstrong. Another well-known female is Cleopatra VII, who ruled during the Ptolemaic period. During the Ptolemaic period, there was no stigma to ruling queens, and many female members of this family actually took over the throne. 
it appears that this family, which was of Macedonian rather than Egyptian descent, embraced the Egyptian culture and the important role of women in Egypt. It was considered a raise in status of their women over that which would have been seen in Macedonia, where women were treated as property. In conclusion, women were necessary to the ancient Egyptian society because they were needed for procreation purposes. Their main roles consisted of childbearing and rearing and managing the household activities and economy. Dr. Robbins summarizes the reality of the situation by stating that, quote, Women could in their own right acquire wealth by personal effort or by inheritance, and in theory they were equal with men under the law. But a woman without the protection of a man was probably, in many cases, at risk from exploitation, end quote. She also goes on to say that women generally held secondary positions within the society as a whole. As with many cultural ideals in the society as in others, the cultural reality did not meet the high ideal that might be expected. While women were technically virtually equal to men, this equality was on paper for the most part, and the actual application of women's rights did not match the ideal. Wealthy women were more likely to have the resources to demand their rights because they would be considered an asset. A woman who ran a tight house and managed her staff well was financially good for the husband. Poorer women did not have the same resources and access, and they were more likely to be marginalized. One of the obstacles researchers face in studies of women in ancient Egyptian society is the fact that men were more likely to be literate than women, and history is written by the literate. Egyptians recorded their society from the male point of view. It is through looking at the physical archaeological record and reading between the lines of ancient documents that we can peek into the lives of the women of ancient Egypt. Hopefully, future findings will help us to uncover more documentation regarding the daily life of women and specialists can devote more attention to this area of ancient Egyptian society.